Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is March the 2nd, 2022. Um, in an odd way, it's almost a relief to talk about social media and its discontents today as Russia invades um, the Ukraine. Uh, the war crimes are, are building up and the crimes of TikTok and other companies seem very small in comparison to what Putin is doing in the Ukraine. But there are other subjects to discuss on this show. So let's go ahead. The headlines today outside the Ukraine focus, as always, on the problems of social media. So according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, TikTok is facing scrutiny uh, in state attorneys' general probe of online harm to children. This is an ongoing issue. It's not just TikTok, of course. It's all social media. Um, social media is not just doing harm to children, also to athletes, according to the Wall Street Journal. It's essential to athletes and can be miserable. It seems to be miserable to everybody. Um, Web3 and crypto is revolutionizing uh, the Internet, may also be revolutionizing our right to privacy uh, and identity uh, online. Uh, New York Times writes about this. Uh, all these big tech companies seem to be continually trying to reinvent themselves. We've heard a lot about Facebook trying to reinvent itself and indeed rename itself as Meta. Now, according to the Times, Twitter wants to reinvent itself by merging with the old, with the new, and going back to the original ideals of the Internet. We've heard that one before, for sure. Uh, meanwhile, Putin, of course, raises uh, his ugly head on in the New York Times when it comes to pro-Putin sentiment online. In an odd way, uh, Putin's invasion of the internet and the digital revolution's invasion of our privacy can be thought of in a, a similarly metaphorical way. One person who's done a lot of thinking about the invasive quality, the invasive dangers of cyberspace is my guest today, Danielle Citron. Uh, she uh, is the author of Hate Crimes in, in Cyberspace, I think back from 2014. <coughs> Excuse me. And she is the author of an upcoming book. Everyone's very excited about this. The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity and Love in Our Digital Age. It's going to be published uh, by Random House uh, on September 1. And I'm thrilled that Danielle is joining us. Danielle, where are you at the moment? Are you in... Uh, your office in the University of Virginia? So I'm at home in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the book, I know my publishers would want me to correct this. So it's W.W. Norton um, and Penguin Vintage UK. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. Than so it's not Random, Random House. House. Yes, um, God bless Random House, but Norton. Uh, although Penguin and Random House are owned, uh, Daniel, by the same company, right? Oh, okay. I got you. Well, Norton is really the main publisher in the United States and elsewhere. And um, Penguin Vintage is just the UK. So, Daniel, I don't want to trivialize um, the idea of invasion, a physical invasion of another country. Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, is dominating all our thinking in the news today. But is there any value in comparing the, 
the invasion of countries with the invasion of our privacy by big de- by dig by by big tech is that a a valuable way of thinking about the problems today with the digital revolution well they're in many respects they're they're inextricable at least um the uh, disinformation that we see sp- spread online is is a handmaiden of um we we've seen a, a as part of war right since you know, the early days, Putin's been using disinformation, whether it was shutting down websites uh, for the Georgian government preceding the attack in 2008, so that the the kinds of disinformation that we see spread online, um, I think, is part of the story of war, The you know, um, in the 21st century. And so you're right that, of course, your question, which is, to what extent can we compare privacy um, information privacy and the privacy around spatial, like around our our intimate life, how can we compare it to the gravi- you know, the, the gravitas of, of physical violence and war? Um, and and they're all part, you know, as we think about what makes a good life. Um, of course, breathing is a cr- cr- critical part of that, and sovereignty over one's nation, and, and privacy is part of a good life. And so, the you know central liberties and civil rights of our age of course, include the integrity of our nations and our ability to have democracies and, and, and self-governance. Uh, but privacy is part of that story. And so I, I don't think it's trivializing to kind of talk about them in the same breath, but but part of a, a single story about what a what a good life and um, a society that we all want to live in and choose to live in is, is about. Danielle, uh, Putin, of course, knows exactly what he's doing in the Ukraine. He's invading another country. Do you think that Big tech execs like Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg, do you think they would accept in any way the idea of their companies invading individual space as being in any way credible? Or are they just so blind to the monster that they've created? I think surely they they understand their entire business model is predicated on the collection use and, and sale of our data that can be, of course, shared with um, governments, let alone advertisers. And so I think if they, they don't see their business model for what it is, they would be hiding their head in the sand. You know, they know that's their business model, right? And so um, the, the the notion that they don't think they're disrupting our spatial privacy, the privacy of our, you know, Facebook Live, um, you know, we've seen a Facebook Live stream uh, rape, right? And it's not, uh, unfortunately, Facebook Live has been used um, to live stream um, crimes uh, and illegality. And so the idea that they're, they're in, that we can't take them apart, right? That is like, they would say, oh, Facebook is, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, watching us and everything that we do. I mean, we are documenting ourselves and they're collecting and selling and sharing our data, which has everything to do with our privacy that we have in all aspects of our life, including including our spatial privacy. Uh, Danielle, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I had the great Shoshana Zuboff. I'm sure oh, you know yes. her and Amazing. her work. Yes. Her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, was a huge hit, and I'm sure yours will be equally relevant. Um, are you in sync with Zuboff in this uh, meta view of us living in an age of surveillance capitalism? Is industrial or has industrial capitalism, 20th century industrial capitalism, become 21st century digital surveillance capitalism? 
I mean, Shoshana's absolutely right that we are the like uh, she ta talks about us as the res the we're the we're the we're the extraction like we're the natural there we're the raw material right of we're uh, the oil right we're the oil right or, or as right as she talks about the sort of we're like numbed into um, the giving over of our of our data and Shoshana is, is incredible thinker um, and her focus of course is on the private sector's collection use and sharing of all of our personal data um, and. Uh, the way in which we've become, we're the product, of course, but in a, in a most egregious way, right? In the way that we are, we're almost not making our own, as Shoshana would argue, we're not like making our own choices. It's all manufactured, right? That is, we're being not only exploited, um, but our reality and the realities that we think we're choosing are really the companies and not our own. And my work is, uh, I, I take a part of privacy. So the privacy that we enjoy around our intimate lives or our bodies our yeah. is uh, so, sorry to jump in Danielle. oh no is you're the, fine. um yeah. is the subtitle of the book um still protecting dignity identity yes. and love in our digital age because i think those yes. three words are core to your argument dignity identity yes. and love yes and and to be clear right um the kinds of, i'm focusing on a on intimate privacy the privacy around the boundaries around our intimate lives so our close relationships, our bodies, our sex, sexuality, and gender, uh, and all of our communications with our close intimates. And we need intimate privacy to have respect, self-respect and social respects so of dignity. We need intimate privacy to develop, fully develop our, our, our sense of who we are, right? We need to go backstage and to figure out the kinds of identities that we want, the, the future selves. We need privacy uh, for that. And we need intimate privacy um, for love, for our intimate relationships, right? That is, we develop our close relationships. So our friendship, our close friendships and our love relationships through uh, a process of mutual self-revelation. And we make ourselves vulnerable and we're only going to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable if we trust um, our our close friends and our loved ones to keep our confidences to, to be discreet with them. So to, we're to onions, keep... um uh danielle and yep. we we unfold or we life yep. unpeels us and that's what you want the internet to somehow replicate to protect us as onions or protect our many skins yes and and the you know communications technologies our apps on our phone like you know sex toys are all networked right so all the ways that we communicate with our with our friendships and loved ones and establish relationships are we often mediated through network tools and we've got to trust the companies that are mediating those relationships to keep our confidence, to keep our, to be discreet with our information. And it turns out they're not, right? They're not promising it, nor are they keeping our intimate information, unfortunately, to themselves. And we often assume and we want intimate privacy. We take um, it for granted. We had we, um, we had Laura, um, Laura Kipnis, a, a very mm. influential and entertaining cultural commentator on the show yes. last month talking about how COVID has reshaped our concepts of dating, love and sex. In COVID, of course, we've become almost entirely dependent on our digital machines. How much has COVID compounded all the problems of privacy that you write about? So I'm the, um, so I've been writing about individuals who invade our intimate privacy. So from video voyeurism. Right, so I'm talking about the sort of COVID times. I don't mean yes. the 
I don't mean the disease, the, the pandemic itself, but how we're living oh, no, no. in COVID just, behind wanna, the screen. Absolutely, Andrew. But let me just back up for a second by explaining this. So COVID has exacerbated the ways in which we violated intimate privacy. We have, unfortunately, because we're in front of our screens all the time, that and because people have certainly for those first two years were so often indoors and using their machines to communicate with people, they tormented, invaded the intimate privacy of people in ways that went up like 200%. So I'm the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. And what we found was that the incidences and people reporting non-consensual pornography to our organization went up 200% in the first six months that the previous year of, of our lockdown in COVID. And so, you know, unfortunately, what COVID did was accelerate our the, the rush to indoors, the, the extent to which we were relying on these tools and it unfortunately we saw people abuse them and in ways that violated intimate privacy and so that's why i wanted to just step back and say you know we we have long used network tools to post people's nude photos online without their permission and to hack into cameras on people's computers to watch them undress to secretly tape them and share those videos online and during covid we saw an increase of all the ways that we violate intimate privacy whether it was sextortion like around the globe, it wasn't just the United States that these incidences of violations of intimate privacy went up, but it was true in South Africa, in South Korea, video voyeurism, sextortion, non-consensual pornography all escalated across the globe. We did a show recently with a, a fair psychiatrist, Ronnie Cohen-Sandler, on how to, how to raise self-reliant teenage girls in the age of the internet. I have a daughter, many of us have daughters, so we know what this is all about. Um, to what extent are teenage girls in particular the most impacted by this invasion of privacy uh, in, in the digital world, uh, Danielle? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the majority of victims of violations of intimate privacy are, are, are women, are sexual and gender minorities, um, and uh, non-whites. And so that's true. Certainly women, girls and boys are the, the sextortion, which is the um, extorting nude images from someone based on the fact that the they sexual it. blackmail, essentially, essentially. Yeah. And, um, the 90% of sextortion cases involve women, girls, and boys. So children, and you ask like, so how bad is this for, for female teens? And the answer is the majority of victims are either women in their teens or, you know, people who are over eight, women who are over 18. Um, and cyber stalking, which is, was the topic of my first book, which is often like a perfect storm of privacy invasions, defamation, threats of violence, over 30% of women in their twenties experience cyber gender harassment or cyber stalking in the way that I explored in my book. Um, and so it is a big problem for young women in particular. Could we use the word epidemic or pandemic? These words are used now all the time, but would it be appropriate to use this word when it comes to the stalk, the sexual stalking of, uh, of, of teenage girls? Absolutely. Right. So um, if the, if it's, you know, um, we certainly see that women and girls are the more often the victims of cyber um, gender harassment. Um, and I think for, for women in their 20s, right? The fact that 30%, that certainly is of, it's it's unbelievable how um, 
common it is. Um, and so I think it's fair to use that language, though we often think of when we use concepts of pandemic and, you know, we think of disease, right? But it's, I think, fair to say that, you know, when people are being targeted for attack in ways that ruin their lives, terrify them, make it really difficult to get and keep a job and to feel safe, um, even safe walking around in, in one's own home, I think it's fair to, you know, the concept of um, disease that is undermining of one's opportunities, absolutely. I think it's fair to kind of use that language of it's pretty widespread and, and disabling. This fight for privacy, uh, Danielle, is it in a sense of a fight for our sanity as well? We've done many shows on, again, the pandemic of mental ill health. We did one recently with Thomas Insel, who's a very influential uh, observer of, of, of mental illness, also with Christine Montross on the way in which um, the American incarceration system has essentially collided with um, with mental uh, institutions. To what extent is the fight for privacy also the fight for sanity? You know, without intimate privacy, the ability to kind of manage the boundaries around our intimate lives, you can't have a sense of ease. That is like the opportunity to be alone with oneself or with trusted others. Um, it provides a, a, the way that we think about ourselves is a sense of safety. Right, that is, it's only who we've invited to be with us, either physically or in our communications, that we have a sense of like we're off stage, we can relax, let our guards down, um, fall in love, right, experiment with who we are. And if we don't have that, that deep sense of unease, right, can turn into sheer terror, right, especially when um, people are specifically targeted with intimate privacy violations. We see, um, so the majority of victims of non-consensual pornography experience anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, and it's really hard to trust people after you've experienced, um, whether it's a deep fake sex video, non-consensual pornography, sextortion, you know, other ways that your, your sense of like safety and integrity of yourself. Um, it's, it's the idea that it's, it, it's a crisis of mental health as well as, you know, a crisis for one's careers. Um, and sense of physical safety. So absolutely, it implicates our emotional stability and, and sense of, of um, well-being. Danielle, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. Technology, of course, never stands still. Every week we do a show about new technologies, some of which are even more worrying than, than the previous generation. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with Amy Webb on synthetic biology and how that's going to change everything. Are you fearful of new technologies in the pipeline that might only compound the very problems that you're confronting in your work and your book? You know, unless we sort of take a moment and, and, and say, look, we're going to design new and emerging network technologies with privacy um, in mind, I fear that they're going to be abused or designed to invade intimate privacy, um, you know, we can't just build things. We have to think about how they impact our, you know, our, our privacy, our equality. Um, we often just like throw things over the transom, you know, the hacker's ethos is to just build it. And then we'll figure out when there's harm afterwards, you know, we'll, we'll deal with harm later, right? And we, we need to reverse that order of things, that when we build tools that we think at first, like as we're designing them, 
how can we protect privacy? How can we ensure that these tools don't undermine the quality, right? We have to think about safety and privacy before we even design them. And so uh, unfortunately in the United States, you know, our approach to so many of these things is A, we have too thin of a privacy protections um, and, and too little, and Section 230 of the Decency Act means that um, user-generated content that sites are immune from responsibility. And so it, it hurts companies little to just, you know, build things, move fast and break break things, and you break a lot of things, including yeah, privacy, uh, My old friend, uh, Jonathan Taplin, had that as his title of a book, yes. Move Fast and Break Things. Yes. We're talking with Danielle Citron, the author of the upcoming Fight for Privacy, one of America's leading privacy advocates, particularly when it comes to uh, sexual privacy, the the subtitle of the upcoming book is Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in Our Digital Age. We spent the first half of this show, um, Danielle, laying out the problems. I want to talk about the fixes after the break. So stay with us, everyone. In 60 seconds, we're going to be back with Danielle to talk about how we're actually going to protect privacy and maintain our humanity in an age of ubiquitous digital surveillance. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Danielle Citron, the author of the upcoming The Fight for Privacy. It's a very exciting project, Danielle. I'm really excited to, and really looking forward to reading the book. We'll have to have you back on in six months when it comes out. Um, a few uh, Last year, I had a show with my old friend Noam Cohen uh, talking about how exactly can we escape surveillance capitalism? So what are we going to do about it? How, what are the fixes, Danielle, that you focus on in your book that are doable, realizable in, in, our, in our age of big tech? So I think we have to start by 
imagining and understanding privacy and intimate privacy as a civil right. That is, it's a right that each and every one of us um, has deserves. And that it also we need fundamentally key protections for um, that would combat discrimination. Because so often, you know, data about the most marginalized people is used in ways that reinforces stigma uh, and discrimination. And so, so what does that mean? Like if you think about intimate privacy as a civil right, um, in the United States, our modern civil rights laws look at the caretakers of certain physical spaces like schools and um, of uh, you know, workplaces as the sort of caretakers of important rights, whether it's to work, right? Or if you think about the roadways, like we have to reasonably accommodate people, um, you know, the disabled um, to like store owners have to, uh, they're the guardians of those spaces. And we ought to think about data privacy and intimate privacy. That is the collectors of intimate information they, we, we need to treat them and require that they handle intimate data as the guardians of those data. They're the caretakers of our intimate information. Right now, we often look at them as, you know, it's like a consumer protection problem that if you don't lie to us, right, and or uh, you don't like release our data to the hands of hackers, like you're fine. Like so long as you give people notice and some hidden privacy policy on our website that we can do anything we want with intimate data. And that's just no longer acceptable. We need to shift our thinking um, in the handling of intimate information and the the processors, like the, the companies and the government actors who collect and use and share our intimate information should treat that information um, as, as we would think of a, a guardian. Right, they're the guardians of our intimate information, and they owe us duties of care, of loyalty, and that they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be in the business of selling our intimate information um, to third parties um, unless we decide ourselves to sell it to those in, those parties themselves ourselves. And so, I think we need to shift our thinking away from this. We have a very permissive legal landscape. Uh, around the collection, use, and sharing of information, and we've got to flip the script and and think of anybody, like any actor that's collecting our intimate information needs to become the guardian of that information with important and potent responsibilities to our data and to us. Um, and so we need to change laws around our, for certainly as to, if you think about who are the stewards of our information, we, they need responsibilities and law, need, we need to fix law. Right, and that same is true for um, online platforms. That right now they enjoy an immunity from responsibility. We don't treat them as the stewards of of information. We, it's basically the wild west. We say, all right, like you're immune from responsibility for user generated con um, conduct and speech. And if people are harmed, um, it's you know we say go figure out suing the perpetrator. But we're not going to hold the platform that's making money off right. of so that. Right, so that touches on responsible. That touches on section 230, which I want to yes. talk about in a yes. minute. But okay. you're talking about something very substantial. Are you suggesting perhaps even a, a constitutional amendment of some sort, given the new nature of this economy? I don't think we need to change like state constitutions. We certainly aren't going to get a constitution, constitutional change at the federal level. But civil rights, how do we protect them? It's through federal or state legislation. So we've got, you know... Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, protection against workplace discrimination. We need a, a civil right to intimate privacy. 
that we enshrine in federal and state legislation. Um, and so, and we need state AGs and the Federal Trade Commission to protect us and ensure that the guardians of our intimate information are taking good care of it and that are being loyal to us and keeping our intimate information confidential. I know you have strong feelings on Section 230, which is the core piece of legislation enabling platforms mm -hmm. to avoid yes. economic responsibility for the material published on them. Are you calling for yeah. Section 230 to be uh, fundamentally reformed or perhaps just shut down entirely? We need to keep Section 230, right? Like, So Section 230 has two key provisions. One has to do with filtering too little and the other has to do with filtering too much. And I don't think we need to get rid of it. You know, the folks who say like, throw it out, you know, law should just operate as it should. I think we, Section 230 did give us a lot of great things, right? Section 230 is why, you know, in the late 1990s, we saw, and then 2000s, um, we saw the development of social media and search engines um, and the pressure to remove content, you know, it didn't have that kind of pressure. And we saw, you know, all types, all different ways in which um, apps have developed. And, and we saw, you know, online speech really take off. At the same time, you know, the drafters of Section 230, so that's Representatives Cox and Wyden, what they wanted, they called the statute Good Samaritan, blocking and filtering of offensive content. And the idea was to provide this immunity if you acted like a Good Samaritan, if you were responsible for the speech that you were hosting. Um, they certainly, they knew that the government couldn't do it all, right? But what it has led to, so the underfiltering provision, has meant that if not only are you don't have to act like a Good Samaritan, you can solicit illegality and still enjoy the immunity from responsibility. And so I think we need to reform Section 230. We shouldn't get rid of it. We don't want to throw the whole thing out. It's, it's done a lot of great things for speech, right, and for um, engagement and, and, you know, different ways that we communicate with each other on, uh, online. But we need to condition the immunity on reasonable content moderation in the face of clear illegality that causes serious harm. Um, you know, otherwise, revenge porn sites, you know, when, when people's nude photos are posted online, they get to say to victims, too bad, so sad, like nothing I can do for you and nothing I need to do for you. And those sites should not be able to encourage illegality and not have to internalize any of the costs that they're externalizing. And so I've written a statutory fix and proposal with Ben Wittes, um, who's editor-in-chief of Lawfare. We sort of teamed up together to write the statutory language. I've testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the Permanent Intelligence Select Committee. Um, and so I've, I've thrown out my my ideas for Section 230, and I'm working with folks on the Hill, and I hope that we can we can see our way to reforming it in a productive way without having to get rid of it. Danielle, we did a show a couple of months ago with a wonderful essayist, Colette Brooks, an American essayist, on the dangers of misremembering our past. Um, but misremembering and forgetting is a is an all too human thing. Mm, yeah. Do you think we need to? figure out a way of teaching the internet how to forget. Right. I mean, so this really interesting sort of piece of the way the Europeans approach privacy, um, uh, the right to be forgotten, um, information that's stale, that's no longer relevant. You know, the Europeans um, have enshrined this notion of the right to be forgotten. There are certain things that we like should, memory should decay, that we don't need to remember, especially if it's no longer relevant. Um, and 
you know, our First Amendment in the United States, like, has, you know, is some allergy with the notion that truthful information should be forgotten. And we do have a limited form of the right to be forgotten in the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So, like, bankruptcies that are seven years old, our credit reports remove them um, from our, you know, from our credit report, which is influential and can be determinative, like whether we get a job or keep a job, right? Um, and so, it's it's tough to say we sh we need a right to be forgotten. That's blanket, but I think when it comes to intimate information, so like nude photos that have been posted online without your permission, we need the ability to ask and require that sites take down those. So we need a right to be forget forgotten when it comes to intimate information that's been posted without consent. So I've written a bit about what, what we can call privacy injunctions, that is courts should be able to order court, like courts should be able to order tech companies or tech platforms to remove intimate information that's been posted without permission. So I would have a modified right to be forgotten that isn't broad sweeping as we see in Europe, but one that is tailored to intimate information. Well, Daniel, you've only made me want to read your, your upcoming book even more, The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in Our Digital Age. I don't suppose you can persuade your publishers to <laughs> publish the book early, but we're, we'll we'll show some patience in waiting. Meanwhile, what should we be reading? I was actually alerted to your book by Neil Richards, the uh, author and of I was gonna um, say we, yeah. Why Privacy Matters, which is an excellent sort of book, I, I guess, a companion piece to your stuff. Yes. Um, so in addition to Neil's work, what else should people be reading in early 2022 to get ourselves ready for your uh, fight for privacy? Okay, so um, we should be reading Julie Cohen's Between Truth and Power, which is a, a brilliant discussion of information capitalism and the kinds of incentives that we see um, and broad scale sort of structural inequality um, that's, that's baked into the collection of information. So a wonderful companion also to Shoshana's book on surveillance mm -hmm. capitalism. Do you know her? I love, yes, we're on the board of Epic together. Oh, can you introduce me? I'll have to get her on the show. Oh, you mean Julie? Absolutely. I would love to introduce you to Julie. She's Excellent. so brilliant. Yes. Wonderful, um, Danielle. Anything else? Any, it doesn't have to be a tech book. Oh, what yeah. else are you reading? So I was just reading, um, Risa Galyubov has a brilliant book called The Lost History of Civil Rights, which is mm. about the like early story of how we understood civil rights in the 1940s. The Department of Justice fought for an understanding of civil rights as workers' rights. Not an anti, just not so narrow to be focused on anti-discrimination, but on protecting the ability to basically make a living um, uh, in the 1940s and 50s. And so oh, it's such a, it's an amazing like unearthed history of the way in which the Department of Justice understood civil rights um, in the 1940s. So, and beautifully written. Um, so I would say I, that's what, that's what's currently sitting on my bookshelf right now. And that I'm well, that's reading. a good suggestion. Um, and we, we will read those while we wait for your new book, your upcoming book, the Pri the fight for privacy, protecting dignity, identity, and love in our digital age. Uh, finally, um, finally, uh, Danielle, who's in charge? Who's running the world these days? It's like the most depressing, you know, as you say that, like, as we think through, like, who's, who's, who has all the power these days? And I would say, un unfortunately, it's this, like, the handshake, invisible handshake between government and tech companies is where the power 
resides. Um, so, you know, you might think like, of course, the government's running the show. And the answer is no, no, right? The handmaiden of government who really has power over us and the power over our data are companies that collect, use, and share our information. Um, and they're often government's handmaidens. Um, so I'm pretty worried about that's who's controlling matters at the moment.